1: can save some real money on Princeton University Press Books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New
0: Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Sports, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Paul Nepper, and today we'll be talking to Thomas Beller about his new book, Lost in the Game, a book about basketball. Thomas has been a contributor to numerous magazines and newspapers. He teaches English at Tulane University, and this is his fifth book, I believe. Uh, Welcome to the show, Thomas.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: It's my pleasure. Um, So this is a book of essays which kind of vacillates between your observations about organized basketball and pickup basketball. And they really, uh, they read like two different worlds. And anyone who has played both or played one and followed the other knows it's two different worlds. What's kind of the common string that ties all facets of basketball, from shooting in your driveway to pickup ball to NBA ball, what ties it all together?
1: Hmm. Um, well, the ball, the hoop, the geometries uh, the, of those things. And I guess also um, at all levels of the game, I feel basketball is both an intensely communal, social thing and also an intensely solitary um, act. And that's true of a person of any age in their driveway or in a, a playground going by themselves and just putting up shots in this kind of aimless, evolving daydream kind of way that people I think inevitably do when they're shooting by yourself, that these fantasies or narratives start to percolate around the edges, that you're you know, hitting the game-winning shot over and over again. I think that's an intrinsic, essential part of basketball. In fact, may I just plunge into the depths really briefly on this one. Do you mind? So yeah. there's a quote that I, from James Naismith, the originator of the game that I put in there that um, shortly after he devised the whole thing, he walked by some kid who was shooting a ball into a basket or a peach basket, whatever the device he'd had in the very earliest right. stages. And cause he invented this in a kind of school environment to keep restless kids over the winter occupied. And then an hour later, he walked by, and the same kid was still shooting the ball. And he goes, "Why are you still here?" Basically, or what you know, he remarked on the fact the kid was asked, "Why are you still? Sh- what's up?" In James Naismith's speak at the time, and the kid's answer was, "He wanted to see if the ball would go in." That this endless sense of evolving mystery, and I was struck in a conversation I had with Bill Bradley, who I interviewed about a year ago in connection with a one-man show that he has put together a kind of live memoir that was being recorded for Netflix. And we just, in fact, now that I think about it, we talked about it in our interview, but it's part of his show that he has a riff about exactly what I'm talking about. Just being alone with the ball, shooting it over and over again. And the reason I thought about it in the interview context is he kind of lit up a little. He, he acted out, you know, this is a guy now who's 70 years old or something. He physically became a bit animated, acted out the jump shot, you know, gooseneck hand and said swish. And there was a little, he's a very, I don't want to get deep into Bill Bradley, but he's a very, you know, he's a banker. He's the son of a banker. There's a sort of Midwestern reserve about him. But in that moment he lit up a bit. And so to answer your question, I would say at all levels of the game, since he's obviously played at the highest levels, there's this intense relationship to solitude in basketball. And there's obviously this other thing where you are in the playground. It's a communal thing, two-on-two, three-on-three, five-on-five. Or you're a professional athlete, which is a whole other level of communal craziness. You're in the circus traveling around the the country in this entourage. You're standing in front of thousands of people. Or you're a fan, which is also a – so there's – I'd say the the game at all levels – Um, has that spectrum and probably more so than most sports on the solitary side.
0: You have what I, I I guess I would call it an interesting relationship with pickup basketball um, that comes across in the book. Uh, I don't know. I I guess I would say it's love. I think there's love there, but I, I would also use words like addiction, which I think you use obsession um, and, I think it was, I think it was at the, at the very end of the book, you, um, you referenced the great, uh, Luttrell line line. I have a family to feed. Um, and you talk about how you're, you know, you're in your fifties now and you're still, you know, spending a lot of time working on your dribbling and working on your shooting. Um, and so I, I guess my question is why, why do you think you still have that drive to improve or to work on that work on those facets of your game?
1: Um, Thank you for that question. Uh, I definitely try to ponder that in the book. And I've had an occasion to talk about that a bit more since the book has been out. And I would say the simplest one is I played organized basketball for from like seventh grade through the end of college. And I kind of sucked. I mean, I would have moments. I, I say I sucked in the sense of I would have moments that would suggest a ceiling that was kind of much higher than where I normally was. So there was this sense of like underachieving that was there in seventh grade and ninth grade and high school. I played small time college basketball for four years. And uh, I had this exciting encounter with Bernard King at a uh, sort of museum exhibit devoted to the city game at the Museum of the City of New York. And I approached him as, as a journalist and I said, you know, Mr. King, very nice to meet you. And we chatted at some length, which was great because he was kind of the first superstar I saw in person. Um, and at one point, you know, I shared some of my some of the very matters that you just brought up a little bit. Or he, he'd asked me, "Do you still play?" And I emphatically said, "Yes." You know, as a matter of fact, I'm kind of almost more committed to the practice of the game now than I was when I should have been, you know, playing. At the college level. And then even though he was very dapper in a suit and moving a bit gingerly and, you know, in his sixties, I said, do you still play? And he sort of smiled and said, never. And I took from that, not that I was surprised he said it, but I just took from that juxtaposition that guys who played at a very high level, division one type of guys and professional athletes of all sports, I think, uh, but basketball may be particularly well, there's a football, there's a bunch of sports I think this applies to. When they're done, they're done because the game requires such devotion and is so punishing on the body. And, you know, Bernard King, man, you know, he he was the first guy to come not only was he a superstar, he then had a knee injury that at the time was knee career ending and came back and was an all-star. That had never been done. He has nothing left to prove. I'm on the other end of the spectrum. I have I don't want to say nothing left to accomplish. That's silly. You know, whatever one accomplishes in playing high school and college basketball, but there's this tremendous sense that like I should have done better. If I, if I knew then what I know now, or what we know is a culture about working out about training about weights. So there's a bit of that. And then the other thing that you mentioned is um, I did, there's some correlation between when I took a break from drinking, just a break. It's not a, major step into recovery or anything like that it was meant to preclude that, but that you could probably date the intensity of my relationship to basketball escalating to around that, the start of that break.
0: Uh, as I mentioned to you before we started, I, I love, I just, I love the stuff about pickup basketball cause I, I've played my share in, uh, in New York city. I was particularly tickled by the reference to, uh, call park, because uh, I lived on the Upper East Side for a while and, and I and actually I played some ball there. And I think most people don't know about that park. So it's not it's not it's mm-hmm. not Riverside Park. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I really enjoyed that. Um, and I love this stuff about I think I think you I think you said at some point that you realized uh, that basically the, the the pickup ball in, in New York City and, and everywhere to some extent has its own language and mm-hmm. its own rituals and its own rules. Um and uh, which I was so familiar with, but having not played in a while and, and having it presented in the way you, that you did was really from the outside able to see that anew and see that for it being its own world. And, and so for, for those that aren't very familiar with the pickup scene in New York City, um, could you give a kind of rudimentary description of, of, of that world and what that life is like and maybe some of the rituals?
1: Um, gosh, well, I don't know how different the pickup scene, of course, it's different in New York City, because it's just more intense. I mean, I get into that at some point in the book that like, through some accident of urban planning, New York just has a great deal of public basketball courts, sprinkled around, nestled next to the play, you know, the little kid playground, or some other facility. And they were, you know, Robert Moses had a hand in all this. And it's just a curious fact so there's a as is the case in so many other ways the distinction is in new york there's more but the the essence of it is not too different um you show up at a playground and there's a few words this i don't know i don't think this is a secret anymore like you just say you find the people sitting on the sidelines and you say who's got next and then what's what's tricky is you either know this whole scene so that you don't need to hear these instructions or you don't and, or you're new to that space, which is actually something I do kind of enjoy doing. And then the people you've just asked who's got next look up at you. And sometimes there's uh, just one person waiting to play next and not too many people around, but often there's a bit more people than that. So there's a, a line I've got next and the guy after then who's at, uh, do you have your five would be the next if you're, if you're writing a little translation guidebook, you know, like like a, you know, French for non-French speakers when you're visiting France or something like Pick Up Basketball, the translation, um, you'd say, you know, bonjour would be like, who's got next? And the next phrase would be, uh, do you have your five? And then often the answer is some kind of nod, yes, no. And then the third phrase would be, can I run with you? I don't know why we've suddenly broken it into this thing, but the, what I want to say is that is where things get complicated. The third phrase, because everybody who's uh, on the sidelines with next is de facto their own general manager of their team. And, you know, with the general manager responsibilities to draft well, and then there's all this social stuff going on. Cause often there's some very intense stuff going like, like, basically guys who are teenagers or in their early 20s who are in the space around other guys they've known since they were little kids. And I've actually seen this a couple of different places where one court in the West Village, where I've played in my 30s pretty much into my early 40s, um, I just saw a generation of kids who like these 14-year-old little spindly guys goofing around and then to see them to evolve as people and as players is quite interesting actually I was shocked this guy Jermaine, if this is a total digression but just forgive me this this guy Jermaine, rail thin like a Durantish like body except it's maybe six foot two or something um you know he went from being just like this all oh, this like coat rack shoulders kid with a very sort of straight up and down jump shot for some irrational reason, he seemed like the sort of player who like John Thompson would have had on his Georgetown team in the eighties. Don't ask me what I'm thinking about Reggie Williams or something. Anyway, Jermaine, you know, went from like 14. The last time I saw him playing was in his late twenties. I think he was working for UPS or something. And then I would say a solid 15 years after that, I just found out he died. He'd passed away. There was some heart shocking, surprising thing or anyway, that's neither here nor there, Paul. I'm sorry for that. But the the big moment is, can I run with you? Because then people will have to look at you and size you up, or they know you well. Either way, they might say yes, and they might say no. And then if they say no, well, what? why did they say no? Do they have four other players that they've lined up? Probably not. There's probably a friend of theirs who's playing on the court right now. And if that friend loses, they're going to pick up that friend. Because you'll often see players, after they lose, if they're good, particularly immediately get back on the court because you've saved the draft pick. Anyway, that's, I I don't know why I've gone into this translation mode. That's my, the one other thing I'd say about the whole thing is everyone's nicer now.
0: Yeah. And I wonder, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm so familiar with that sizing up that sizing up aspect of it because we all do it. um, And, you know, you size up the, the, you look at the person's height, and you look at the person's skin color, and you look at what they're wearing. Do they do they look like an athlete? How young are they? How old are they? All that stuff. Um, and I, the last guest I had on on, on this podcast was Ray Scott, who was uh, had a career in the NBA and was the first he was the first African American coach to be named NBA Coach of the Year. And he talked a lot about what it was like to be a six nine black man, um, both on the court and off the court. And you touch on your height somewhat because when you when you're I mean you're six five that's tall six um, five and a half you're white six five and a half my my bad right you. um <laughs> you're white um which is a is a thing I mean I know I played on a lot of court you know I haven't played pickup ball in a while but I used to get you know you hit two jump shots in a row and it's like oh shit Larry Bird Larry <laughs> Bird you know I got plenty of that yeah uh, you mentioned you got you got you got the Dirk thing. Mm-hmm. um exactly I, I guess i'm dating myself by showing how long it's been since i played ball that i was getting the larry bird but uh but you know i so i guess my question is what what is it like to be a six five and a half white man on the basketball court on a pickup court in new york city
1: mm-hmm. um two things i want to say in response to that one is it you're not just dating yourself by talking about being called larry bird when you hit a jump shot that's also, I think, a testimony to the weirdly mythic endurance of the Larry Bird legend, which is partly, I think, weirdly enough, because of the Michael Jordan legend that basically things like The Last Dance had brought the era, the late era 80s era, into a kind of focus that you might not have had without Michael as the ambassador for that, you know. Um, and I should... This is a huge digression, but forgive me for doing it. I have become aware that there's this fetish for late 80s and 90s era basketball that a number of books focusing on that. Um, I just read in manuscript a book by Rich Cohen that makes an argument for the best NBA season ever being the, I think, 1989 season or 90. It was the first year... the Pistons broke through. I think it was that. And he just makes this case that there was, there's never been, there were never more hall of fame players active in the league at the same time. There were never more MVPs active at the league at the same time you had. And anyway, to get to your provocative question about height and race, um, it's kind of a big deal. And those are important metrics in your experience of life and life in basketball and life as a pickup basketball player. So thank you for asking about it. All I'll say is it was much more intense for me when I was younger because I sucked. (laughs) Just the only way I (laughs) can say it. And if you're like very tall, I can imagine, I suppose, and it's not about race here, but I can imagine maybe a sliver of sympathy, but I think, no, no, I'm projecting my paternal self now onto what it was like at the time. Cause most of the people you're playing pickup basketball with are not fathers or certainly not fathers of anyone older than an infant or something like that. They're, everyone's like in their, most of the people are in twenties and thirties and there's no paternal, there's no sympathy. It's like some gawky young kid, some comer shows up and thinks they can do something. The general impetus is to smack the kid down. And if the kid is like very tall, that motivation gets enormously amplified. And if they're very tall and white, all the more so. It's part of it. I don't know how much part of it, but it's definitely part of it. And um, all those other cues that you mentioned, it's all part of it. So when I was younger, it was pretty rough because I just couldn't, I couldn't even... I didn't have the mental or the physical strength to really deal with it. Um, Now I have much more of both, not to mention kind of a little tiny bit of a sense of humor, not very much actually I should add on the court, but some, yeah.
0: How are you now as a player compared to when you were younger, hows 50 something year old uh, Thomas Beller? Who would win? Let's, let me ask you this 50 something year old Thomas Beller or 30, your old Thomas Beller, who, who one on one, who wins that game? Me now, but really?
1: I'm, I'm starting to, yeah, oh, definitely. But what, what happened with me is, and I do t- say this in the book, it's ridiculous to say, but let me, since you're asking, okay, this nostalgia for the 80s and the 90s, you know, you see things like Rex Chapman posting uh, videos of like no crybabies and like a montage of like Bill Lambert throws Michael Jordan to the ground, just violent stuff all the stuff that the rule changes that people complain about um, were meant to prevent, like taking 30% of Charles Oakley's game away from him, you know, (laughs) all the enforcers, Rick Mahorn, you know, no, you can't take Stephen Curry and throw him on the ground. If he drives to the basket, you can't even really touch him. So that we could discuss if that's gone too far, but um, you know, one of the things that's happened is the philosophy of arranging players on the court has become one in which having a big man outside of the lane, creating space is valuable and having a big man who can shoot the ball is valuable. And I was such a prisoner of the post in the 80s when I played organized basketball as like one of the big guys on the team. And it sucks to be told to go down low all the time. Think about it. First of all, you have to fight in there and all this violence takes place. Second of all, you have to run so much more than everyone else. You're the slowest guy on the team, and you're the one who has to take the ball out on one baseline and then run all the way to the other baseline. The guards, who are the quickest guys on the team, are just floating from the top of one key to the top of the other key. <laughs> no problem. So, And then, you know, even today, it's actually interesting. I do feel, I feel the game is so much more sophisticated as it's played on playgrounds, that the general level of basketball sophistication because of the million YouTube videos and Instagram feeds in which you can see like oh Kyrie Irving is going to practice you know this in and out dribble between the let like these moves you know there's it's almost like dance lessons but one thing that's actually a bit of a problem is the entry pass because if I do start yelling give me the ball on the post I've got these guys out there kind of looking at me like so you're suggesting I throw the ball directly to you? Like <laughs> I'm like yes you know what I mean? <laughs> Do it as a bounce pass. Like, so, so, but basically it's been great to have license to shoot from outside and not, it's still, people will look at you, like, go down low. I'm like, well, not all the time, dude, give me the ball, you know? And if at some point, if like, you're not going to give me the ball, it usually doesn't come to this, but there's also this feeling like it, I'm the one getting the rebounds. So if you don't give me the ball, I'm not going to give it back to you. Uh, So there's all this stuff that I never would have done as a younger player. Cause I never would have had the confidence to say like, no, I have the ball. I'm just taking it. Now am I dribbling it down the court? I'm going to pull up from three. Cause I can do that. So that whole attitude is new and the skill is new and the cultural license to shoot from outside as a big man is a fairly new development. And I absolutely celebrate it. It's genuinely one of the best things that's ever happened in my quality of
0: life. Interesting. I, I, uh, you know, I, I, just, I just read all these essays that you wrote about the game of basketball. And, and, and uh, uh, you have such an interesting analytical way of looking at the game and the players. And I, I'm very curious, what are some of your either current or all-time favorite basketball players?
1: Hmm. Wow. Um, I mean, thank you again. Uh, I, if I can just wind my way into that answer for a second... It's very interesting to me to note that it seems it's quite early days that the response to this book is leaning a little bit towards the pieces about pickup basketball and are a little bit less emphasized, with the exception of Jokic, which has gotten quite a reaction. But, you know, I go on at some length about James Harden, Anthony Davis. I realize Anthony Davis is not like this superstar charisma guy, but he's an interesting, you know. He, before Zion Williamson, for example, he was the most hyped guy since LeBron, that sort of thing. Uh, but I feel there's a connection between you. This goes back to your question of what's the, you know, the the pickup basketball and NBA basketball is how does it all tie together? You know, just like if you go to an art exhibit and you look at paintings or sculpture or something, it's different if you are a painter or a sculptor. You just look at it differently. How did they do that? What effect are they achieving? It's just a different way of approaching it. Right. And I think the immersion as a player affects the way you write about professional athletes. And in my case, there's a lot of talent in the world of sports writing. It's the most overfunded you know, enterprise. There's no shortage of smart people getting paid a lot of money to think, I don't know, Henry Abbott and Zach Lowe. And this is a whole roster of big time sports writers you know never mind the woe stuff where you're just feeding front office gossip out to the public but i mean not only that but 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 i wanted to just see if i could bring something from my playing life into looking at nba basketball players and bring that language into it so that's not an answer right now there's so many players that i would just be like yes i want to watch Zion, Brandon Ingram, I'm kind of obsessed with Jose Alvarado on the Pelicans, who I saw live at Madison Square Garden uh, over like a year, basically his first breakout game ever. And in the layup line before the game, this tiny little person was dunking. And I was like, who the hell is that? And that turned out to be a huge game for him. He's from Queens. Brandon Ingram bought him, like gave him like 50 tickets to spread out to his family and his people. Alvarado's brother is a huge BI fan and we went over and gave him a jersey. It was a big bonding moment for those two guys and Alvarado sort of feeling included because he was this insanely sort of small, what are you doing here guy? So to answer your question, Alvarado, I love to watch right now. Uh, be, all Basically the Pelicans in general are pretty fascinating. Um, obviously Luca, obviously Nikola Jokic, um, obviously Kevin Durant, obviously... Uh, LeBron still interests me. Steph interests me. Uh watching the Warriors younger players try. I mean, one of the things about Stefan Clay, who I write about a bit as a duo, and Draymond, but Stephen Clay particularly, uh, you may sorry to digress into this. Uh I'm very the fact that Mark Jackson is an NBA announcer who's now probably called a hundred Warriors games, it it's as though a guy is having to describe a wedding pageant featuring a woman that he used to go out with a hundred times. I mean, it wasn't just that he coached the warriors. He coached Stephen clay. He, I don't think he came up with the splash brothers, but they emerged as the splash brothers under their coach, Mark Jackson. He declared that Stephen clay were the greatest shooting backcourt of all time. And everyone laughed at him. And then he gets fired as a coach. And then calls a hundred games of their incredible ascent, the team's ascent as champions on the back of the Splash Brothers, the greatest shooting backcourt of all time. I don't think anyone would pause for a second on that one now. End of digression. So that's very interesting to me. But almost every team, you know, you're actually asking this at an interesting point in the season. We're like a quarter of the way through the season. I've been mildly interested. I genuinely feel it's getting very interesting now, to the point where every NBA team, I'm like, the jazz. What the hell's happening with Laurie Markkinen? You know, how is Jordan Clarkson making this work? You know, Mike Conley's still playing? Amazing. You know, Minnesota. What? Cat and Gobert together? Are you crazy? Let's see what that looks like. What's happening with Kat? With, uh, with, what's his name? Uh, Kermit. That's what they had um, Anthony Edwards playing in that Adam Sadler movie. His name was Kermit, the villain. Uh, Kermit seems to have st- taken a step back a little bit with this clogged up lane. Um, pick any other team? there's interesting players, you know, some of the super exposed teams, like of course, Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, very interesting to see them. Very interesting to see like what Peyton Pritchard is. How's he hanging in there? You know, Hauser, this crazy guy about to fall out of the league. They're a little overexposed for my, so I'm not dying to see them. Now, if you're talking all time, which you did ask me, so I've just taken five minutes of your time to get around to your question. (laughs) Sorry. If you're talking all time, Once you move past the super marquee names that goes without saying, Michael Jordan, you know, I like, it was interesting to see Larry Bird. It's it's interesting now to see Larry Bird. I'm down for the endless Magic Johnson stuff. I'm down to some extent for the endless rehashing of the Pistons and Isaiah and so forth to a point. Um, Although frankly, I enjoyed Rich Cohen's book about them more than I enjoy the, clips about that Piston era team. Although there's a last dance dream team ish documentary about those Pistons made in the nineties that surfaced around when the last dance came out. That's kind of fascinating because of its generally middling production values. It's fascinating in juxtaposition. You felt the last dance had like the full force of like the NBA culture, money, machine. This was like very glossy. Michael Jordan. And then Detroit Pistons, like they don't have those funds. They're not that cool. They're just, it's a, of course it's unfair. It was a different era, but that juxtaposition was interesting. But then getting into the weeds of your question, you know, I love Latrell Sprewell. I wrote about him in the book. No one is talking about that piece, which is actually what the piece is to some extent about, the unheralded heroism of Latrell who was turned into a punchline for every sports columnist in America For that still is. Still, every now and then, they'll reference Luttrell pretty well turning down whatever $28 million and saying, I have a family to feed, and then not getting another contract. But I think Luttrell was cool. And um, historically, I've actually tended towards, you know, guys whose game or personality was a bit outside of the mainstream AI. For example, obviously, I was completely fascinated by him as a player, moving on the court. I wrote about this too, about that almost uh, Sistine Chapel-like moment where he crosses over Michael Jordan, this endlessly replayed video. And then Jordan is totally beat and then almost comes back all the way to almost block the shot. And Paul, if I can just bore all your readers to complete death and sleep, I just want to say I went to a Pelicans game, a friend, my friend, Tom Lowenstein, took me to a game before I gave this reading in New Orleans for the book and bought these amazing seats. And we sat right behind the Oklahoma City bench, which is why we could afford these amazing seats in New Orleans, because I'm going to tell you right now, you could get courtside seats in Madison Square Garden, or you could fly your entire family to New Orleans and put them in a hotel, buy courtside seats, and it would cost the same thing. Right. So I'm sitting there and I took a video just a random video from that proximity, which I later looked at and it was Jose Alvarado putting a move on Lou Dort. Who's kind of like a low budget drew holiday type of player, you know, very strong, super, super motivated defensively does all kinds of weird herky jerky stuff. Pump fakes steps through Lou Dort is completely, he's landing somewhere else while Alvarado's elevating two feet. You know, it's there's no hope. And then, Stuart somehow twists his body, immediately jumps, reaches, and it's kind of like a, a, like a low-budget uh AI Jordan moment where like his hand almost gets on the ball. I do tend to enjoy these like weirdly granular reads on moments, you know, right. almost treating basketball as like some text. You're just gonna futz with like the same paragraph or the same little bit, you know. Um, so that's a very truncated answer to your question about favorite players of all time. And i <laughs> I'm it's sorry. Great. It's
0: great. Great stuff. I'll
1: give you one last example. One last example. This doesn't rank as as favorite players of all time, but I remember going to a Knicks game in the 90s, and I remember it was the Bucks team with Vin Baker and Glenn Big Dog Rice. I believe that was his nickname. Is that right? No. Robinson. Glenn Big Dog Robinson. Robinson. Yeah, yes. There we go. And I just remember being with these people who were Knicks fans and I was like, yo, Vin Baker and Glenn Robinson are in the building. Like, look at those guys. Like, and this was before I, I knew I was writing a book like this, but I think the desire to just kind of fixate and appreciate these very individual talents, you know, and those guys are not hall of fame guys, but they're, Vin Baker is interesting because it turns out he was an alcoholic the whole time, but yeah. And so there's more names I could rattle off. Sorry for the long answer.
0: No, 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 it was great. I enjoyed it. Um, I, I, I do want to. You mentioned Spreewell and, and I actually wrote a book on the '90s Knicks. Um, and and one of the, the I always found there was this interesting, yeah, this interesting juxtaposition between Spreewell and Allen Houston, um, who were kind of the two shooting guards there. And and a lot of it, you know, and. Houston was never as loved as spreewell was I mean as you touch on in your, in your in your book I mean spree was absolutely adored by the Knicks fans and you get into to why a little bit. Um, I mean the, the major juxtaposition I think a lot of it was uh, just demeanor just their demeanor on the court which I think was even deceiving at times you know I mean, Spree played so angry and aggressive and um, Alan Houston was very stoic on the court and because he didn't play with that, apparent fire of Spreewell or kind of his predecessor, John Starks also played with tremendous emotion on the court. I think there was a sense that, you know, Houston got labeled soft by some and that he didn't play as hard. And um, is it, do you think it's primarily, by the way, a great line. I don't know if you ever heard this. Allen Iverson was once asked if he could have anybody else's game, who would it be? And his answer was, he goes, some people might think it's Jordan. It's not Jordan. If I could have anyone else's game, it'd be Latrell Spreewell.
1: I had no idea about that. That's news to me, but that it makes complete sense. I yeah. Mean, yeah. There, there was something the same lineage.
0: Kind of like Allen, that, that Spree was, there was a rawness to him, I think, and an intensity and, and kind of a street quality to his game um, that that is reminiscent of Iverson. Do you think it? Do you think it's his demeanor why he was so loved? the The way he played with appeared to play with such anger and ferocity.
1: I think it was his skill and his success is why he was so loved. I mean, he was good. Yeah, but he
0: was absolutely.
1: But I mean, that's important to say that attitude alone will do nothing. You <laughs> know, you have to. Right,
0: right. Then
1: there's the fact I heard once heard an anecdote that in practice, uh, which is a funny thing to bring up with Iverson in the conversation, but in practice, Luttrell would be The fastest one, like doing suicides, like he was the one and he would run beyond, like you're supposed to go baseline to baseline. He would run to the far wall, touch it and then run all the, you know what I mean? He would do these like above and beyond physical things. Um, But, you know, when we're talking about ferocity, I don't think Luttrell was any more, I don't think Alan Houston was in a passive, facially passive, whereas Luttrell was facially expressive. In a way, it was almost the opposite. I would say... Starks had a lot of intensity, but I mean, a lot of ways Starks and Houston were, you could imagine them being nice guys. You could imagine them, for example, to put this in absurd terms, but I'll just do it this way. You could imagine going to a playground, seeing them sitting there going, Who's got next? Them going, I do, and going, Can I run with you? And they may be like, I have my five, but you wouldn't feel that bad. You could imagine Luttrell being there saying, Can I run with you? And Or, You have your five. And I don't even know if he would answer you. Like I could, you could imagine him just looking at you being like, I'm good. Or just his remark would be something that might make you feel less comfortable. But he wasn't emotive. It was almost the opposite. He was, he had a stone face, impassive, Old Testament kind of ferocity inside of him. And then when you saw him talking in a locker room, you know, he was actually quite soft spoken and thoughtful. Um, But on the court. I mean, to give you the most easily accessible example, game five of the finals in 1999, which they were in because Alan Houston shot against Miami in the first round. Let it be said, Alan Houston's entire career was redefined by that shot. And if you see a video, since Paul, and I'm so sorry, I'm not familiar with your book, but since you're obviously familiar (laughs) with the material, you can easily find on, on YouTube a video of Alan Houston hitting this little, essentially floater, and it kind of rimming in, hits the front rim, bounces in. He sprints down the entire court to the far baseline, pumps his fist, and exhales with relief. And to my mind, he, on some atavistic level, knew that his entire career was not rescued exactly, but redefined by that shot. That back off on the soft shit. Right. Miami, Pat Riley, Alonzo Morning. These are some, this is the team that Jeff Van Gundy was clinging to Charles Oakley's leg like a little dog while he's battling with Alonzo Mourning. You know, this is a violent, you want tough 90s teams. That's the Miami team that they're playing. And Alan Houston hits a game-winning shot. Oh my God, I don't think I've ever, that may actually be one of the happiest moments of my certainly life as a basketball fan. So we're in the finals because of Alan's shot. But if you think towards the end of game five, when it was hopeless at the garden and the trail comes down, drains some threes, every single hope in the stands. And I felt even on the court, if you're a Nick was on the trail, it was like Moses, like it was going to be him. And that my piece ends with the very last play and the shot doesn't go in and the series is over and the Spurs win. But it's like, he wasn't just his attitude. He gave an incredible amount of effort on the court. So, So cool, so admirable. Iverson had this too. See, but this is where the street thing comes in. This is where the street basketball thing comes in. Yes, of course, like cornrows and certain style aspects of it and a certain swagger, that's definitely part of it. And that's the easier part to discuss. This other thing where you're having your whole goddamn life depends on this shit. Like you you're so into this. You really, you're going to get to the basket. You're going to just go with force. You know, you're going to bring something. You need to have some drama inside of you. And those guys had that. And I don't for a second want to put myself within a thousand yards of those guys, but I feel like I've kept that little flame alive. Like you could get to a certain age and be like, it's just people playing on a playground, dude. Uh, But at a certain point, I'm able to get into this slightly almost hysterical, but you're cool, but you're cool. That's the thing. You get the intent, you get the stakes get high, but you don't collapse emotionally. Although I still collapse emotionally, but I, I at least have some ability to rally and not collapse emotionally. And, um, if I may, cause I'm right here in the thought, a part of that came when I realized I could be supportive of my teammates and say these things on the court. We're good. We're fine. Good shot. I dish to them, set them up, encourage them, be someone who's encouraging. And then I realized, Oh, if I can do that for them, I can do that for myself a little bit when someone is in my face or I'm, I'm missing shots and things like that.
0: All right, let's get to Jokic. <laughs> I love Nicole Jokic. Uh, I, it's, I, I, I view him as an artist on the floor. Um, as a lot of these guys are, but there's something just unique and special about him. Um, you know, we were just talking about demeanor and he has an unusual demeanor for an NBA player and certainly a superstar on the court, um, possibly off the court as well. Um, there's a kind of a, a almost goofy, oafiness to him. Um, he certainly doesn't look like an athlete uh. uh I don't know, all of all of which, all all the things I just mentioned, I find incredibly endearing, and I, I get the sense that you do too from your essay. Um, what what is it that is unique about Nikola Jokic among you know NBA superstars? What makes him different?
1: Well, I'll start by saying that for someone who's turning their attention to him now in 2022, he's a lot less different than he used to be. He's a large guy who will sometimes dunk a basketball, which seems extremely unremarkable. We were just talking about Jose Alvarado, who's like five, eight or nine or something dunking, so seven feet tall, should be able to dunk. No big deal. Right. That's actually fairly new. I think he's probably this is probably the th- third season He probably started dunking around his fourth or fifth season in the NBA, and prior to that would not dunk a basketball because he didn't really get off the ground that far, even though he's quite tall with long arms. So the difference is a bit reduced now. I'm almost nostalgic for 2015, 16, 17, 18 Jokic when when every time he did something good, it was like a magic trick. It was like a joke. And the fact that his nickname was the Joker was both funny and almost annoying because nicknames shouldn't be <laughs> that on the nose, you know? Um, but where to begin? I mean, you said a bunch of things. So yeah, he's... Extremely, I mentioned earlier that, like, I like, I tend to actually be drawn to guys whose game is in some way an outlier a little bit, or there's something about them that's in some way eccentric in there. So AI falls into that, Spreewell falls into that. I could go down a long list of other, you, you can actually find, if you look closely enough, you'll start to find curious things. I remember once I was watching Mark Gasol uh, in a warm up before games and I realized that he was practicing this kind of like 17 foot extended, like elbow shot. And he was just, cause I actually find it fascinating to watch NBA players do these pregame rituals and warmups and watch them shoot. And just, there's a, you know, there's an assistant coach or ball boys throwing them the ball and watch them get into this repetitive trance. Um, so Gasol would have this habit of uh, cocking his chin just a little bit before, if you fa- if you imagine the famous James Harden moment where he drops Wesley Johnson and ends his career in one play, and then looks at him, and then hits his three, Harden it's so con- pronounced because of the beard, you know, he cocks his chin a tiny bit at him. But Gasol did this too. It's a little bit like some. Con- it's very Spanish actually. These conquistador-like gesture. So, if you look closely enough, you find curious eccentricity and personality in almost everybody's game. But Jokic, you don't even have to look that closely. He's the most bizarre creature in every sense, the way he moves, the fact that he achieves the success he has on the court, the fact that a lot of what he achieves on the court is not immediately visible to the naked or untrained eye, because it's almost the presence of an absence that makes sense? Like, for example, efficiency. Talking about the efficiency of someone scoring is not something you necessarily notice as a game goes on. Right. You'll say, oh, that guy scored a bunch of baskets. You don't go, oh, my God, that guy scored six baskets and he only took seven shots. And think think to yourself how valuable that is as opposed to taking 12 shots to get six baskets. On and on and on. So that's my general answer. It's not much of an answer. He's just he fascinated me early on i knew i was going to write about him i started hovering around him a little bit literally and then and then just paying attention to his games and highlights and i couldn't get it and the more he eluded me the more i had to dig in and i frankly the book could have been done a year earlier and i just spent the jokic piece and the bobo piece were the whole last year of the book trying to cuz bobo is another Actually, when you said players you like to watch, bow bowl. oh my God, Team Giacometti. And basically every, everyone on Team Giacometti, including Victor Wembanyama, who's going to end. But uh, interestingly, Chris Epps Porzingis is no longer on Team Giacometti. He's been in the weight room too much. He's not. He doesn't have that silhouette. But back to Jokic, it's very hard to get, you know, you're excited about him, I'm excited about him. It's hard to articulate what drives that excitement.
0: Yeah, um, yeah. I just I, I love watching it play. And it was funny too because I, I read a couple of days ago. I was reading your uh, I was reading the Jokic essay, and then uh, that night I watched the Nuggets play. I can't even remember, but he had he had a, like three big gashes on his uh arms. on his upper arms. Yeah, which yes. I never noticed before. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I, as I said, I watch him a lot. I'm a big fan. I never noticed it before, but it you know after reading your essay, it really jumped out of me. It's just a,
1: just here's one thing I guess that's worth mentioning. Um there's this guy named Marcus Elliott, who's one of these Sloan MIT sports analytics people. He's involved in that world. He runs a I don't even know what to call it. Like it's somewhere between a gym and some sort of medical data center, but NBA players go and work out with him and he attaches his team attaches all sorts of electrodes and like as though you're getting a EKG or something and tries to understand how people's bodies move and in that way where how they can improve or what's the injury risk and because it's so weird like um al farouk aminu your body is your business you know that line was i get fixed kind of obsessed by and it's such a big business you know like if dante di vincenzo's left ankle is gonna blow out in the next week like millions of dollars ride on this Some of like peripheral nba players ankle, you know, things like that. So never mind the superstars. So Marcus Elliott has Jokic in on his first summer and has never seen someone jump so low. He was like an all-time lowest percentile jumper. But then he has this other drill and my God, did I have to spend so much time trying to make him, make him explain it to me. It's called the 10.6 drill. And they try to measure how a player gets their hand to 10.6 feet, above the ground never mind if you're jumping if you're short if you're tall the idea is the ball gets shot at the basket it misses it's somewhere at around 10.6 feet off the ground who can put their hand there fastest and how and the lowest off the ground jumper they'd ever measured had the fastest they'd ever seen get their hand to the ball and i think how they measured that, what did that mean? What does it say about his movements? I try to get into that in the piece a little bit. It was hard to understand. But one thing that occurred to me is his arms are in a position to reach up at all times. And for that reason, that area on his upper arms is constantly being clawed at. And then there's the explanation of his coach from Serbia who communicates in all caps about a sensitive skin. So there's that too. There's that too.
0: Uh, last person I want to ask you about is Zion. Uh, you know, you've covered him extensively and, and I know you're based in New Orleans um, and you, you, know, you talk about Zion's burst and, and the anticipation of when he, his rookie year when he came back from injury, you talk about the anticipation of seeing the the, the Zion that everybody you know I'm a Nick fan I was you know on my hands and knees praying for the Knicks to win the lottery to get Zion and he was just a phenom the likes of which we hadn't seen come into the since LeBron um and he had the he had the weird start with the injuries and and the weight issue and uh I guess my question is I, I haven't seen him much this year where where do you think his game is right now and how does it is he living up to the expectations that people had of him and 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 kind of where is he now and where do you see him going in the future as a player?
1: Okay. Um, just as a preface, I was, I was around Zion and gone to some practices and I saw, I was talked to him on draft night. I did have a certain sense of Zion, um, but that's not the case this season. I haven't been going to games as a journalist. I haven't been, been that close to him, but my sense is this. Um, Obviously, he came into the league like Mike Tyson. That was the comparison. There was a that moment in Summer League where he, speaking of, from the Knicks' point of view, in fact, it was Kevin Knox. It was against the Knicks. Right, right. I, I remember
0: against, I watched that. Yes. Yeah.
1: He he, uh, like Mike Tyson, he just took. He's like looked at Kevin Knox, took the ball out of his hands, throws him to the ground like a, like a little doll. Kevin Knox goes flying out of the frame, and then dunks the crap out of the ball in right. five seconds of like. It was like watching Mike Tyson do a first round knockout or something. Had that kind of ferocity, physical overpowering. Um, what I was around for, which informs my answer to your question, is this incredibly depressing period. It wasn't just that he was injured. It was his whole body language, his appearance, his behavior when he was injured. And it was- he
0: put on a lot of weight too.
1: It happened twice. I mean, there was the first injury, came back, showed this- unbelievable late season flash, and then showed up the next season, Uh, actually I don't want to get this wrong, if I'm not mistaken, the next season there was even more cause for joy, and then it all went crashing to the ground, and I, I might be getting my chronology wrong, but there were basically two episodes of injury. There was the first one, major bummer, but here he comes, and then wow, he really is going to be amazing, and then there was another injury, and that was the one where things got really dark, and there was a point where he got really heavy. And at some point, I thought this was really telling. He, he left New Orleans and the significance wasn't, oh, you know, he's eating too much food in New Orleans because of New Orleans. No, he went to Oregon. He went to like the mothership, which is not the Pelicans, it's Nike. And I thought, and that's where something turned around. And I, we have no way of understanding what's going on at the personal level with a lot of these athletes who knows what relationship was important for him to be near or what relationship was important for him to not be near or anything like that. I have no insight. I just know it got really depressing and now it looks amazing. Now there's suddenly reason to again feel all the old optimism at that same OKC game I mentioned because I had this amazing behind the bench, sort of almost parallel to one of the baskets. I had this incredible angle on a play, that did not make Sports Center because nothing happened. A Pelican, I forgot who, shot the ball, missed. Oklahoma City got the rebound, did a fast break in the other direction. The significance of the play was that Zion went in for a putback. And it was like the Thanksgiving Day parade. Like all of a sudden, this giant thing in the air floating in the opposite direction of everyone else. The ball is coming off in one direction. All the players are moving towards the other end. Zion is still in the air floating up and past the backboard, you know, landing somewhere past the baseline and then running back into the play. But just what the hell was that? You just like, what was that? Like, was that the halftime show showed up, came up early and jumped off a trampoline? Like, there's they train an elephant to jump off a trampoline. And this is the thing about Zion that's the ongoing suspense about him. If he stays healthy, he's going to be an all star. He's going to be an all NBA player, whether he's a third team, second team, superstar, make a document. It's hard to say. It could go a million different ways. But the fundamental fact is he's a freak of nature that he's that big and that strong and can get off the ground. And the other thing I want to say that's slightly optimistic is slightly, but it could also go the other way. And I think I even wrote this. it On the ground, Zion looks extremely ungainly. I said, I think I have the line is like Zion on the ground looks like, like a fish out of water, but in the air, he's like a fish in water. You can't. He doesn't look healthy or plausible. He, he, there was a moment when he was injured. I think it was his freshman, excuse me, his rookie year, and which technically, by the way, would have been his sophomore year, just to throw that out there since I said freshman. Uh, in the locker room, you know, not that I want to celebrate these guys for swagging it up and wearing groovy fashion clothes. I'm agnostic on that or entertaining, I don't care. But Zion was so non-swagged out of that particular game he just looked—I don't know—he looked just like some guy, not in the best mood, not in the best shape. And he's this young guy, and he had two phones. Like Paul Pierce famously had this moment—like he was—he had two phones. Great. Like um, Grandpa Paul, like doesn't understand technology, like he whatever. But Zion had that. He had—he was shotgunning iPhones, and like w- he looked like a prematurely forty-five-year-old guy in that moment, and it was worrisome. And the optimism is, you know, all these guys are sort of freaks that they have trained themselves and are able to – there's not one NBA player that if you actually focus on, you start to just – you can't believe what you're seeing. There was this guy, Jalen Williams, the guy from OKC with this big mop head. He looks like a mop You know, you look at that guy closely, you're like, what the hell is going on here? He's got (laughs) insanely long arms. Long, not much of a neck. He's, trained, he's actually pretty quick. He's like 6'9". He gets off the ground. And you're realizing that, that... Okay, see, in particular, the guy was platooning them in for like five-minute stretches. Trey Mann. I watched Trey Mann shoot like twenty threes and make them in a row. You know, And then he's in a game and you're like, oh, it's a war out there. He can barely get a shot off. All these guys, when you look at them, become curiosities. But Zion is like, maybe, maybe that's just the way it is. He looks like he's going to blow his knee out just getting a, walking down the street and then he gets in the air and he's a fish in water and it's all going to be a happy ending. I think that question is just up in the air right now, no pun intended.
0: Yeah. yeah as you were describing that play uh, that Zion made, uh, it, it reminded me of uh, just the other day I talked to a, a writer named Bill Livingston who uh, covered the 76ers for a long time in the, in the late 70s and early 80s and then actually covered the Cavs uh for many years um but i asked him i asked him what it was like to cover dr j and he said it was a it was magical it was amazing and he said the great thing about it was every day when you went to the game you knew that you might see something you've never seen before and i think there's a little of that aspect to zion that he can that at any moment he could go up and just do something so spectacular that you just you can't believe it
1: yeah i mean it's a happy moment for the world of Zion Williamson, although it's interesting to just briefly mention, uh, for somebody who had that much hype, part of what seems to be going on is he's, I think, actually kind of happy to be just part of a group. He doesn't need to be the man. I mean, he he wants the ball. He'll do things on the court assertively, but I feel emotionally he doesn't need to be like the number one dude. I think he's glad to have someone like CJ McCollum around him, like a vet, sort of a little bit of accountability. You know, CJ called him out. He said, I've been on the team for 10 days. I haven't talked to Zion. He sort of called him out on this disengagement. Um, BI is obviously a huge talent and it's interesting. I'm doing this from North Carolina. I'm going to do a reading at in Durham tonight. It's Duke university press. I'm a little bit like apprehensive about going into the middle of this crazy collegiate rivalry that I'm not that invested in, but you know, Zion is a Duke person. BI is a Duke person. RJ is a Duke person. There's that famous moment where Zion gave a press conference after a game at the Garden. Like, gosh, I just love playing at the Garden. That sent every New Orleans fan like, oh no, and every Knicks fan. (laughs) But Paul, I want to briefly ask, because I know we can't spend all day talking, although it would be fun. I want to ask you, um, with apologies for not being familiar with your book, but knowing that there's this literature of... Valorization of that era. How you feel about this new NBA era versus that one in terms of the rules and?
0: Yeah, you know, I I always say there's pluses there's pluses and minuses because I know a lot of people from my era. Uh, you know, I, I've heard people ask, I can't watch the NBA anymore. It's it's two. It's all three pointers and and you know, there's no physicality and. I think there's pluses and minuses. I mean, as someone who loves the game and enjoys the beauty of the game, I I, I don't think that. You know Steph Curry and Kyrie, and you know forget the off the court shit, but just the the beauty of his game. I don't think they would be able to exhibit their skills in the same way that they do now, with you know when there was hand checking and that kind of physicality. Um, I think I think a faster pace is a more enjoyable product. Uh, I think they have gone too far with the threes, and I miss more of the cutting. And, and I I think there was a little more strategy back in the 80s and 90s, because it it wasn't just, you know, four guys around the three point line and one guy drive just drive and kick or, you know, dribble handoff or pick and roll and then pop to the shooter. I I think there was a little more going on uh, because you had to, you had to, there wasn't, there wasn't that much space with in which to operate. Right. So you had to, come up with more creative ways to make space for yourself. Um, and so I think a, I think a lot of, I think it's probably more aesthetically pleasing now. What I miss, I do miss the physicality somewhat. I do miss, I, I think it was more intense then. Um, you know, I, I don't buy that none of the guys were friends and this and that, but I think it was more, um, and maybe just the, the astronomical money that's come into it as part of that. But I think there was some more, just you know you you're you're trying to take my job you're trying to take i'm i I have a family to feed Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. and i'm gonna i'm gonna bust you up if if necessary to feed them um the other thing for me personally as a nick fan and you know i mean that was the glory era of course is is willis reed and bill bradley and and the busher and all that, but for people of yeah, yes, my right. age, this was a right. second, you know, mini glory era in the nineties. And we went to the finals twice and the playoffs 13 years in a row. Um, but one thing that was great about that era was the rivalries and I missed that. Right. And I'm all for, I'm all for player rights and players having the right to move around. Um, but that doesn't mean as a fan that I enjoy it. And I like that. I think the, the game misses the kind of rivalries that, we had that and and the physicality enhanced those rivalries. Um, And so, you know, it's pluses and minuses. Like I can't say one era is better than the other. You know, I've loved both of them. I love the game. I love the evolution of the game. I find interesting. And so um, there are things that I miss and there there are things that I think are better. How do you feel about that?
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I think um, I feel more favorably... I have a similar mix, but I'm weighted much more towards favoring this era over that era. I do think we, the pendulum has probably swung a little bit. All I think we're probably going to have a bit of a correction, correction on protecting perimeter players, and I think that's become a little bit extreme. How quickly fouls get called, you know, on just a little little bumps. I mean, you hear this; the announcers are talking about this all the time because they're, of course, products of that earlier generation. Like what right. the heck, did he play. I mean, never mind. I'm talking the in-game announcers. Never mind the Kenny and Shaq and Charles, who are just in a complete right. uproar of com- cranky old man complaining <laughs> about this all the time. But um, I particularly think that the issue you brought up about player empowerment—I agree with you completely. That I'm all for it, but it—it—it's probably gone a bit far where you have a superstar that signs a four-year deal and then, but there's no sense that he's actually going to be held to that and you right. can emotionally invest, you know? And, um, but one thing I want to point out is, you know, the, the money has made it seem a little bit like the circus, although maybe it always was. There's a, I, in the book somewhere, I can't remember where I focus on this tiny little moment with Lawrence Frank and a guy, a minor guy named uh, semi, semi uh, a Turkish player, young Turkish player, Who's been cut? And there's this video of Frank, the I don't know GM or coach or assistant vice president for something, in who, on the team that's just cut. Uh, semi, uh, I, I can't remember. Can't pronounce his last name. He's Turkish. But. Um,
0: oh, o- Odin, semi, semi, o- something like that. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So was it the Celtics? Anyway, it's just I can't remember why this came before me, but. There's this young guy. He's just been cut. He's just been told he's been cut. And then the guy who cut him actually walks into the lobby of the hotel where he's being interviewed and they have a moment. And Lawrence Frank was like, look, you know, you did great. We'll see each other again. The NBA is a circle, he said. That's the line. And he makes this gesture with his hand, like it's going to come around. And I think, and that was well before, that was an interstitial period between the 90s and the era we're in right now. That was something that happened in like the 2000s or the 2000, early 2010s. And I think that it's been accentuated, but it's always been there. Like the league. You're in the league. We're all making money together. This is We're part of a larger thing. And um, it's gotten a bit extreme now that it's like one big soup and you just sort of pick sides. But I want to say this is not just about the NBA. Something else is going on. Because remember when we were talking about pickup, I said people are nicer now. And I feel like for some reason – it's almost like everyone who plays pickup basketball, I, and I don't know what's dri- driving this, but they're a bit more aware of what a cool, weird thing pickup basketball is. That there's no, you don't have to be a member of a gym. This is a public space. It's a little volatile for that reason. So I get into it with some of the boosters. Um, for example, Bobito Garcia and Kevin Coulot made this documentary called Doing It in the Park. And I liked it a lot, but I also thought it valorized a little bit uh, as this beautiful thing. And it's this beautiful, thriving thing. And I'm like, actually, it's got all kinds of ugliness within it. That's part of what's beautiful, but it does. And it's also jeopardized right now because all these talented young people don't just wander out and play. They have organized AAU teams and coaches. You go to playgrounds now, you'll see, depending on the neighborhood, I should add, but you may well see... uh, professional like uh, coaching sessions taking place uh, of individual coaching with cones and workouts. You know, what, what, and this is just something much bigger than the NBA. This is like about the professionalization of childhood and the specialization and you have to have an early specialization on a sport and focus and just train in that. Um, You know, you're starting to hear talking about injuries at the NBA level. Lonzo ball is a good example of this. What's going on with Lonzo? Well, maybe it was because he's been running hills and lifting weights since he was 11 years old because his crazy dad has got them totally focused, but maybe not so crazy because after all, he's got these three sons playing at a super high level. So these issues about 90s versus now, they're not explicitly or exclusively NBA basketball issues. There's larger things in the culture that, like you said, are good and bad. And and I don't just play pickup in New York. I play elsewhere, in New Orleans in particular. And I feel like New Orleans is, as a joke, people say like New Orleans is 10 years behind the rest of the country. It's probably 10 years behind the rest of the country in terms of like, Hey, this is a cool thing. We're all doing together. Like a little bit less menace in New York than there used to be. There's still a little bit of menace in New Orleans, but that's in the game. And then outside of the game, just because of New Orleans, actually everyone's super nice. Oddly enough. Uh, Need to get that shout out to New Orleans, pick up basketball in there.
0: (laughs) Um, Thomas, I could, I could really, I could talk to you about basketball all day and then through the night and again, all day tomorrow. Um, but, uh, I'm sure we both have other things we need to do. We have families to feed, right? I got Yeah. <laughs> um, so I will, I will get you out of here. One last question. Uh, first I want to say again, the name of Thomas's book is lost in the game, a book about basketball. And, uh, it's really fascinating. He, he has a way of, of analyzing, uh, both players individual players at the NBA level and and as we talked about just the pickup scene in uh, in a unique way and that that just makes it very enjoyable and relatable and and but forces someone like myself who's familiar familiar with both worlds um to look at look at them in a new way and that 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 was a treat for me to read so if you love the game of basketball please definitely check out his book um, here's my last question, Thomas, and I ask it to all my guests. Uh, what is your all-time favorite sports book? Wow.
1: Um, I'm going to go on a crazy sideways lark on this one. And this is an example of of recency bias. I'm going to come right out with it since I should be saying Ball 4 or something by Roger Angel or Breaks of the Game or things of that nature and that vintage. I'm instead going to say, and I know that's and and basketball related since that's my favorite sport. But instead I'm going to go to the parallel, the parallel line that the alternate universe to basketball, the same arenas, the same season, the overlap of the fan base is so small. I'm going to talk about a hockey book by that guy Rich Cohen, I mentioned earlier, called Pee-Wees, which is not even about professional hockey. It's about being a hockey dad of sm- of little kid, the AAU scene of hockey in Connecticut. It's funny as hell, and it's quite enjoyable. And I don't even really care about hockey. And that is probably loading it up a bit to say my all-time favorite, but that's what comes to mind. It came out a couple of years ago. Like almost every single book that gets published with a few exceptions didn't probably get quite as much attention or respect as it deserved. And I just found myself completely enthralled with this batshit, neurotic, funny, but rather penetrating drama because it's a story of a season and this kid and these other kids. And I was like, afterwards, I was like, cause I know him. I said, how the hell did the other parents that you're writing about these very identifiable kids and parents and they're nuts. I was like, how did you survive the reaction? He's like, Oh, I didn't. No one talks to me anymore. But, um, I would say Wee's by Rich Cohen. I'll throw that one out there.
0: I will definitely have to check that out. Um, all right. Well, Thomas, thank you again so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. As, as you can tell, I love the book and it, it was great talking basketball with you.
1: Great talking to you. And the only thing I want to say in conclusion is the new books network is one that I'm familiar with narrowly for one weird vertical new books and psychoanalysis. Don't ask, but that's my excuse for why I talk so much on your podcast.